0: So then, let's come in the Word of God this evening to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. This is where we were this morning. And uh, we also looked this morning at uh, Isaiah chapter 14, which we'll not really look at tonight. And just a few verses in Ezekiel chapter 28. Reading from verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise. An emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared. Now in my uh, New King James it says was prepared for you. Actually the word is in you. Which is very different of course. Was prepared in you on the day that you were created. Let's just stop there. This morning we began a short series of messages uh, called Satan or Adversary. Uh, And in this message this morning, the first one of the series, we looked at his creation, his origin, uh, his beginning. And we saw that he was and is a created being. He is not self-existent, not like God. And because he is a created being and because of that, he had a beginning and he will also, thank God, have an end. But he's not some kind of impersonal Uh, force. Uh, He is a personality. He is a spirit being. God is spirit and God certainly has personality. Satan also is a spirit being with personality, not just some kind of influence. And although he does have wisdom and he does have knowledge, uh, he has not got all wisdom and all knowledge like God. He's not omniscient. And although he is mighty, he is not almighty. God is almighty, he is omnipotent. We also said that he is limited in that he's not omnipresent, he can only be in one place at one time. Having said all of that, he still is a formidable foe with which we have to deal with. So, in this message tonight, we want to go further and we want to examine his character. What is he like? Well, his names denote his nature. All throughout Scripture, often you'll find that the name denotes the nature. And so, we're going to look at some of the names that he's called in the Bible, and then we're going to look back here at Ezekiel chapter 28, and those particular verses that we especially read this evening. First of all, Satan, the name means adversary, opponent, and it's used about 52 times in the Bible. Uh, We'll not read this, of course, but if you look at Job 1 and Job chapter 2, you will see that he was an opponent, an adversary of the righteous man Job, godly and good man. And how that the enemy, Satan, came against him and opposed him. He's also called the devil, Diabolus, accuser, that means, slanderer. And that's used about 30, 35 times in Scripture. And again in in Job 1 and Job 2, uh, we see how he uh, slandered and accused uh, Job to God and said that the only reason Job serves you is because you put a great hedge of protection around him but take that away and he'll curse you to your face. We see that he slanders God to man and man to God. Uh, In Genesis 2 and 3 uh, for example we see him in the Garden of Eden and how that In chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, that's a a, a direct contrary statement to what God actually said. Because in chapter 2, verse 16, God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may fully uh, eat, but there's one you can't. And so in a sense he's slandering God. He's making God out to be a liar. And he goes on further uh, and, and, and says the woman said the serpent we made of the fruit of the trees of the garden but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman you shall not surely die. Again slandering God, making God out to be a liar. And God clearly said that you shall die, and so forth and so on. And so that is his nature. That's what he's like. That's what he does. He slanders God to man, and he slanders man to God. The serpent is called the serpent. We, again, we see that law of double reference in Genesis we just read. where, even though that was a creature, a literal creature, but behind that creature, that creature serpent was the devil. And he is called the serpent, the beguiler, the enchanter, where he uses his subtlety and his craftiness. In fact, when, whenever Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, God came uh, and challenged them. Remember what Eve said, the serpent deceived me. And that is his nature. And he is a great deceiver. In fact, at the end of the Bible, when you read Revelation, he deceives the nations on the earth to come against God himself. So he is good at deception. And then he's called the dragon, the great serpent. And this speaks of his vicious nature. In Revelation chapter 20, Verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And there's a number of scriptures in Revelation where he gets that title, the serpent, the dragon speaking of his vicious and wicked nature. And then he's also called Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now this Beelzebub was a Philistine god. It literally means Lord of the Flies or God of the Dunghill. That's some title, isn't it? Imagine being called that. And unbelievably, in, in Matthew chapter 12... Listen to what happens here in Matthew chapter 12. Verse 22. Then one was brought to him, to Jesus that is, who was demon possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say unto you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men." Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Notice how Jesus links those two things together. That's not my subject tonight, which I really can't get into. However, we see here that even his enemies was attributing his works to Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Can you imagine that? Then he's also called the God of this age. Luke 4 and 6, and 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, and Galatians 1 and 4, and so on. I will not give you all of these scriptures. We won't look at them all either. And then he's called the Prince of this world, the Prince of this world system. Jesus called him the Prince of this world. Paul called him the Prince of the power of the air. Uh, that denotes actually where his place of operation is, which we'll not come to tonight, but we'll come to next Sunday morning, by the way. Then he's also called Lucifer. We saw that this morning. Day star, morning star, light bear, shining one. That was his original name. He's also called Belial. Belial means worthless, perverse, lawless. Uh, there's a phrase in the Old Testament, sons of Belial, worthless, useless, perverse, lawless people. And so he's the epitome of that. And then he's simply called the enemy, Matthew thirteen thirty-nine. Wheat was sown in the field, but when they went to get the wheat, the tares had come up amongst the wheat. Who has done this? An enemy has sown the tares among the wheat, and he is a hostile enemy full of hostility and hatred, particularly towards the believers. Then he's called the tempter, the enticer, even to the place and the point where he even went and tried to tempt the very Son of God himself. Now, if he had the audacity to go and tempt the very Son of God, thinking for a moment that he could actually get Jesus to fall and to fail, how much more is he going to come against you and me with temptation? He's the tempter. He's the wicked one. And there are several scriptures describing him as that. Angel of light. Huh. The Apostle Paul uh, mentions this about the angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, <laughs> well, let's have a little look at that. Just second Corinthians, chapter eleven, verse twelve. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Huh. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And so he can turn himself into an angel of light, something great and wonderful, which of course he isn't. He's also the accuser of the brethren. Again, Job 1 and 2, we see that. Uh, We see it in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. We see it in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1 where Joshua the high priest is standing ministering but his garments are filthy and we see the accuser of the brethren. We see him standing at the right hand of Joshua. And the implication is that he's accusing. He's accusing. And so he is the accuser of the brethren. He's the antichrist In the sense that he's the spirit of Antichrist. He will be one who will energize the Antichrist when he comes. It means against Christ. And also he's the adversary. Peter talks about 1 Peter 5 and 8. The devil, your adversary, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. John 8 and John 8, 44 Jesus said he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. The father of lies cannot tell the truth. He has to twist it some way because he is a liar. Abaddon or Apollyon, which means destroyer, Revelation 9, 11. Roaring lion, 1 Peter 5 and 8. A wolf, John 10, 12. Jesus said, the true shepherd doesn't run when the wolf comes. The harling runs when the wolf comes, but the true true shepherd stays. Jesus called him a thief in John 10 and 10, did he not? The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's a fowler. A fowler is one who traps and ensnares birds and small animals. In Psalm 91 and 3, it talks about the snare of the father. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 and 26, it talks about the the snares of the devil. He snares people. He traps and tricks people. And he's also called the son of perdition. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 12. So those are just some of the names that denote his nature that we can categorize them in. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 28, those few verses that we read together, it tells us four things about Satan that to a large degree influences and governs people all over the world. And he has a ways of influencing people. Whether people in high authority or whether the man who's brushing the street makes no difference. And can I just say for those of you who did not hear the first message, whenever you read Ezekiel 28 and you read Isaiah 14, you'll see that it's talking about uh, two kings, as it were, of Tyre and of Babylon, two natural men, natural kings, but who were energized, who were in a sense were puppets of the devil behind the scenes. And so whenever it talks about the, uh, the king here, in Ezekiel chapter 28, the part that we read is actually talking about Lucifer, it's talking about the devil himself. It's the law of double reference. And so the four areas that is mentioned here in Ezekiel 28 is wisdom. And we can add knowledge to that, wisdom and knowledge and beauty, and dress, and music. None of us are exempt from wisdom and knowledge, from beauty, from dress, and from music. None of us are exempt from the influences of wisdom and knowledge, beauty, dress, and music. It plays a big part in our lives, much more perhaps than we realize or even were are prepared to admit to, Now, our enemy, our adversary, knows this. And remember that God made him with great wisdom, with great knowledge, with great beauty, with wonderful, beautiful dress, beautiful gemstones all over, and built into him the ability to make music. And then when he fell, that became corrupt and perverted. And now he uses that against us. Let's look at the first thing. Wisdom. It says in verse 12, he was full of wisdom. Full of wisdom, full of knowledge. And that great wisdom was given to him by God to understand God's purposes and to carry them out under the direction of God and in submission to him. But then after his fall, even though he retained his great wisdom and knowledge, but now it's sensual, it's worldly, and it's carnal. And as James said, this wisdom is from below. It's not from above. It is a corrupt, perverted wisdom that is contrary to the revealed will of God. And it leads to foolishness, to confusion, and ultimately, for many, it leads to their destruction. Because he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. First Corinthians 3.19 talks about foolish wisdom. 2 Corinthians 1 and 12 talks about fleshly wisdom. Compare that to James 3.17. Let me read it for you. James 3.17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. There's the difference. There's so much foolish wisdom in these days. We have never been more educated, never been more academically trained, never have had more places of higher education never had more advancements in science and technology, and yet for all of that, the world acts very foolishly and corruptly and fraudulently and deceptively. So much wisdom could be put, put to greater use, but instead, more often than not, it becomes the enemy of all that is good. Because once man leaves God out of his thinking, once that happens, then all of that God-given ability of knowledge and wisdom, the enemy can use that against him and against his fellow man. Because that's what he wants to do. Uh, Let me just show you that from Scripture in Romans chapter 1 before we go any further. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, as it's written the just shall live by his faith. There's someone uh, who has put their trust in the Lord, there's someone who believes in God. But listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not that they don't know it, but they suppress it. They don't want to live by it. So they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even is his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice that their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now when I'm talking about, when the Bible talks about somebody being foolish, not talking about being daft. Talking about foolish in a spiritual sense. Cutting God out of your life. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's not that you're daft. I mean, some of the people who don't believe in God are very, very, very clever people. But they're foolish spiritually. Foolish, and that's ultimately foolish professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, Once man leaves God out of his thinking, foolishness comes in. And the devil is very clever at making smart people foolish, if I can put it that way. Is there anything more foolish than evolution today? Is there anything that has so gripped the imagination of large parts of the population all over the world in evolution. It is taught in schools, it's taught in university, it's taught in higher academia, it's taught as fact. And well, dare you come against it, particularly if you're a teacher or you're a professor or you're a lecturer, if you come against it, you are person non grata, you are finished in many of these places of higher education. It's got such a hole today, and it is foolish, it's unprovable. It doesn't even make any sense. I was watching a program the other night and I saw a, an Arctic fox in it. You know those beautiful white Arctic foxes? Well, they're only white during the winter. Their coat changes for the winter in order so that their predators just doesn't get at them as often as they would like to, because of the camouflage. And I thought to myself, well, the evolution would say, well, there you are. That's the evolution for you. See, it's all worked out. So, well, hold on a minute here. What did they do before their coat changed? Because it takes millions of years for these things to happen. That's one of them weren't wiped out. I mean, it's absolutely foolish. It's just nuts. But millions upon millions believe it and accept it. Never even question it. So don't tell me the devil's not deceptive. He's very deceptive. And once that got hold in this world, it has wrecked havoc with the thinking of untold millions of people. It's foolishness. Think of the German race of people. Think of the, the quality of the German people. By and large, they're a very, very highly educated people. Smart, clever Inventive, highly disciplined, all of the stereotypical things you can think about Germans. For most of it, it's true in that sense. And yet, in spite of all of that, whenever Hitler came on the scene, it was as if there was a collective national madness came upon that nation, that they actually thought that that little man could be their savior of their nation. I mean, the man was completely, can't think of a word for it. Well, he's demon-possessed, I can tell you that for sure. In fact, one of his Goebbels said that when he spoke in the Nuremberg rallies, he says, something happened to him. He says, something took over. He says, I watched him time and time again. He says, and something took over. He totally changed. Well, we know what took over. We know what was energizing him. But there was that great nation of people With all of their brilliance. And yet they accepted him as chancellor, thinking he'd be the savior of the nation. And at the end of the war, the nation was on its knees. It was practically destroyed. Foolishness. But that's the work of the enemy, isn't it? Werner von Braun was, well, he was reported to be the greatest rocket scientist that ever lived. He was the man who invented to a large degree the the flying rockets, the V1s and the V2s that uh, during the latter stages of the war that they were flying over from coasts of France and Holland into into southern Britain, especially into London, those areas, indiscriminately killing people all over the place, doodlebugs they called and because of the noise they made they heard them coming and what are you going to do? There's I mean, they were just made to just land anywhere in the south of England, anywhere. There was no guidance on them. As long as they got there, it didn't matter where it was or who got killed. And von Braun was the brains behind all of that. He, 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 he was in the Nazi party and he had all, this, all, all the brains and all the wisdom and knowledge to make these incredible things. And it was for destruction. It was to kill people. Now after the war, the Americans got the hold of him and uh, they set him to better use and he was the one who uh, invented the Saturn V rocket that actually took men to the moon in the the Apollo uh, spacecraft in 1969 and uh, lived in America till he died and it shows you that with all that brilliance that could have been put to good use, first of all it was put to destruction where they got a hold of them, and put it to some good use but that's what the devil does he takes all of that knowledge and all of that wisdom of men and he twists it and he turns it to destruction and to evil and to wickedness you think of the, uh, the Iran today and you think of the head of Iran who just wants to nuke Israel at the first opportunity and all of that effort and all of the brains and all the wisdom that's going in to make a bomb to nuke Israel But that's what the devil does, isn't it? And in beauty, verse twelve again, it says he was perfect in beauty, perfect in beauty. But now is corrupted and perverted beauty. And the corrupted, perverted worship of the human form, the cult of the body, is a dominant feature in society today, is it not? Nudity is a national (laughs) obsession, not like Adam and Eve. So nobody come up with that foolish argument, because if you read in Genesis 3, before the fall they were naked and they were not ashamed. Why? Because they weren't self-conscious. They were God-conscious. And as long as they were God-conscious, they weren't self-conscious. But whenever they fell, they became self-conscious and less God-conscious. Conscious of God in the, f- in the sense that they feared God when they heard God's voice come and say, where are you? They ran and hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God says, why did you do that? He says, I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Suddenly for the first time they saw their nakedness in a way that they had never known or never seen before and they were ashamed and they hid and they tried to cover themselves. It was the natural thing to cover themselves once they felt ashamed of their nakedness. It seems today that people are doing everything they can to uncover themselves. It seems like in the world of celebrity today that they're competing against each other to see who can show the most flesh. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with looking after the body that God has given us. But sometimes it can become an obsession that goes beyond health and welfare to becomes a thing of vanity and pride. And that's what the devil wants. Vanity and pride rather than for the sake of health. So the vanity of beauty is either extolled to the ultimate where the body beautiful is all that matters or else it's debased and it's brought to the point of lewdness and uncleanness and defilement and perhaps ultimately destruction through booze and through drugs and alcohol or promiscuity or disfigurement or whatever. This is what he wants to do. Satan has a way of turning something God made beautiful and honorable into something ugly and dishonorable. And it's a shame, isn't it? He was perfect in beauty. But now he takes that which is beautiful And he makes it into something that's ugly or disgraceful or awful. And that's what he does. That's what his nature is like. What about dress? He was attired in raiment of precious stones, verse 13. I said this morning it must have been some sight to behold. Whenever he was a shining one... And he was dressed in full attire of beautiful gemstones that must have sparkled in the light. And so we go from the sublime to the ridiculous, don't we? From the ostentatious dress of the rich and famous, where they will spend tens, I read recently, tens of thousands of pounds in an outfit that was worn once. There's got to be something wrong with that, eh? I read where David Beckham's wife, she has hundreds and hundreds of handbags at thousands and thousands of pounds apiece. There's got to be something wrong with that. And I'm not jealous. <laughs> I wouldn't carry, I don't even carry a man bag. Not there's anything wrong with man bags. I met his dad. I'm digging this hole rightly tonight, aren't I? And so you go from the ridiculous and you look at how others are dressed, deliberately, scruffy, unclean, you know, just as unwashed as you can see. Look at me in your face, kind of seeking attention. By the way, Christians are supposed to dress modestly and moderately. Modestly and moderately. And, of course, they're supposed to dress in a way that will complement God-given beauty and also appropriate to age. We're not to flaunt or reveal our bodies to all and sundry, If you're married, that is for your husband, and that is for your wife's eyes only. Do you hear me? If you're single, be careful how you dress, because you're going to attract attention, and you may attract the wrong attention for the wrong reasons. So be careful how you dress as Christians. We do not have to slavishly follow every fad or every fashion that's on the way, particularly if it's immodest. Do not follow it. Now, in case you think I'm only talking about women, have you ever noticed, and I've noticed it recently a couple of places, have you ever noticed how men, if they work out in the gym and they build a physique, what is the term today? They're ripped and they're buffed. And they've got a six-pack. <laughs> Do you ever notice how guys like that always wear tight T-shirts? Do you ever notice that? Deliberately. Sally and I was in a coffee shop in Lisbon a few weeks ago. She doesn't even know this because the person was sitting behind her. And I never said. I was going to say when I got outside, then I forgot all about it. But this couple come in, <coughs> fell on a girl, and... I mean this is the middle of winter, <laughs> he took off his coat, and there he was in this t-shirt, I, I mean it was, it was so tight, that he, could, he had pimple on his side, I could see the pimple sticking out of the vest, I mean it was that tight, and I thought to myself well, what is he trying to say? What statement is this guy making? He said look at me, hey look at me I work out, look at the shape I'm in, I'm wonderful, Please notice me. Well you couldn't do anything else. Now I don't know any Christians that do that, of course. None of you in here ripped. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't seen any Adonis in here. Somebody said I used to have a six-pack, now I have a 45-gallon drum. (laughs) But you see, if you dress that way, you're making a statement. And what you're screaming is, look at me. That's what you're saying. And if people look at you the wrong way, don't blame them. Because you're inviting them to look at you whether a girl or a fella. So we're to dress modestly and we're dressed moderately. Young people today, especially girls, are much more susceptible. They feel they have to conform to the relentless demands of the fashion industry and the celebrity images. Because for many of them, that's the world that attracts them, even Christians. Even Christians. I see it on Facebook all the time. Even Christians. Well, the celebrity world attracts them, and they look at that, and somehow in their thinking, they think, I want to be like that. No, you don't want to be like that. Trust me. You don't want to be like that. Look at their lifestyles. Look at their background. You don't want to be like that, especially as a believer. But the peer pressure To conform and to be that way is immense. I mean, even secular organizations are saying to the fashion industry, please stop. You're killing our young people. And they're not Christians. Secular people are saying this. But you see, that's what the devil does. That's what he's like. And so... Lucifer was decked out in a garment of beautiful precious stones. Now Sally reminded me at the lunch table today, and I hadn't even thought about it. I kind of said that as worth to say. I should have thought about it. <laughs> I hadn't even thought it. She thought I hadn't even thought about it. But she said today, and it's true, about the interest in crystals, the new agers. Are crystal mad. They feel that crystals has got energy and it's got power and it can do this and it can do that, and they wear them and they hang them up in the house. Do everything with them. Crystals. What a load of baloney. And gemstones, birthstones. I have no idea what that means. What, what is your birthstone? I haven't got a clue. I could care less. It doesn't mean a thing. It may be a nice storm, but it's nothing to do where I know how I was born. It's just a little thing. What about music? You see, it would appear that Lucifer, that created being, had built into him the very instruments of music. Verse 13 says, Pipes. That's wind instruments, isn't it? Flutes, oboes, clarinets, trumpets, trombones, all those French horns, all those wonderful wind instruments. Tablets, percussion instruments, drums, cymbals, djembes, I'm running out of names here because I'm not a musician. Isaiah 14.11 says about viols, V-I-O-L-S, vials. That's stringed instruments. I mean, that is the basis for all music, is it not? Percussion, strings, vials, wind instruments. Every orchestra has got that as their very basis. And it would seem that God had built into Lucifer the very means to worship him with an incredible ability to make music and to lead worship. There are over 800 references to music in the Bible. Music has an incredible influence over our lives for good or for ill. But Satan perverted it. Music, they really did. Music can alter your mood, can lift your spirits, or it can depress you, it depends what you're listening to. It can cause you to be melancholic, or happy, or sad, or jolly, or glad. It's a universal language, isn't it? It can make you laugh, can make you cry. Movie makers knows the power of music. That's why they spend enormous amounts of time and effort and money to make a good score for their movie. And sometimes the score is so good or the song is so good that it eclipses the movie itself. When the movie is long since forgotten, you remember the song and you remember the music, don't you? When you think of Titanic, what do you think about Well, it depends who you may ask that. These ladies may think of Leonard DiCaprio. I don't know. But I think of Celine Dion singing that song. That's the first thing I would think about. You think of the movie The Bodyguard, what do you think about? Whitney Houston singing. That's the thing that lingers, isn't it? And on and on you could go. Because it influences us. And it can do it in a wonderful way but it can do it in a bad way. Now, (laughs) supermarkets and shops, they realize too that music's important. Although sometimes you go into some places that drive you nuts. Maybe the workers doesn't even hear it anymore, but you hear it subconsciously. And if it's nice music, if it's nice, kind of soft, kind of, then it slows you down. And then you don't sail through Tesco or Sainsbury's or Mark's like a mad idiot. You just calm down and cool down. It's designed to calm you down and just to take it slow and take it easy. Fast, upbeat music, it does the opposite, doesn't it? You get your heart racing. Never, ever, ever play fast, upbeat music when you're driving. You will drive faster. I guarantee you will drive faster. Do not play The Flight of the Bumblebee if you're driving. <laughs> You'll break every speed limit there is in the country. It just has an effect on us. Be careful and use it sparingly, music in the minor key. The sad, lonely, morose, unhappy, Songs are not to be our theme tune. And then there's the high energy, pulsating, loud, bassy kind of hard rock, heavy metal music. I don't like that stuff either. I never did, even before I got saved. I don't get it, I don't understand it. But what it does is it affects people. It really, really affects people. Disco music can alter your heartbeat. You know, that's why, you know, in in resuscitation, you see that ad on TV where you resuscitate somebody with a and you know, in your heart, you're to do it with a beat of Saturday Night Fever. (laughs) And that song, (laughs) Saturday Night Fever, they reckon that's the right beat to get your heart going. Disco music, by the way, in the mid to late 70s was a big, big thing before some of you were born of his and dad. It was a massive thing all over the world. It had a big effect. It was a big thing, particularly in the gay scene. It appealed to the very sensual basis and the rhythms of our, of our hearts and everything. And it became something that was very big in the gay scene. Distortion sound, sound bending, electric twisting of sound. This came out of the drug culture, psychedelic culture, acid rock. Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, they all used it. It's a music of chaos and confusion and rebellion. It causes tension, unrest, aggression. It's not good. It's not good. And today we have all kinds of music: we have hip hop, we have garage, grunge—you name it—with every type of genre of music that you can imagine, and it just keeps changing. And a lot of it's not very good or very wholesome. And you see, those—I uh, saw it recently. I deliberately watched it for about 15 minutes. It was all I could stick. I don't know who the band was. It was one of those great, big, massive. Heavy metal bands, anyway. It's a big arena in America somewhere. There must have been 100,000 people. It's massive. And there they were playing this. I have no idea what. Oh, I couldn't understand a word of it. I didn't hear a word of it. It was just a sound, a wall of music, and people was going berserk listening to the thing. And I thought, that has got to be the devil himself in the middle of that. It can't be. I tell you, God's a million miles from that. You say, David, it's an age thing. It's because you're not young and hip. Well, I never was just well. I was young, but I was never hip. <laughs> but it's not just an age thing; it's a God thing. I don't think God's in the midst of that. Let me tell you, I think a devils in the midst of that. It does more harm than good, doesn't it? it turns people's heads. And so, music and dress and beauty, and wisdom, knowledge are all wonderful gifts of God that Satan had in abundance. But now that he is fallen. He perverted them and he uses them to degrade and to debase and often to bring to destruction many, many lives. And it's very, very subtle indeed. And it's such a part of our daily lives that we have to guard against it and to be careful. Not to be paranoid, but just to be careful. What we watch, how we dress, how we live... All of those things are thinking. I keep telling you, you're going to have a view about this world. Make sure your view is God's view. Make sure it's a biblical view, not the worldview. Because that's against what God says in this book. So that's why you've got to read this book and get to know what God thinks and what God teaches us. And then you get a good worldview. Amen? Now, here's what we're going to do. Next, Sunday morning, God willing, we've looked at his creation, his character, Next week, we're going to look at his campaign, his warfare, especially against God's people. We're going to look at the arena. We're going to look at his army. We're going to look at his armaments. We're going to see what's under his command. I told you this morning, there's different levels of command in his kingdom. And we're going to see what those levels of command, the Bible tells us what they are. The Bible makes it very clear so we know that what we're saying is scriptural and it's true. We're going to look at that, God willing, next Sunday morning. But, thank God he's defeated foe, eh? You know what Jesus said? One time he sent his disciples out and he gave them power over unclean spirits. They came back and they were rejoicing that even the evil spirits are subject unto us. And remember what he says, in this rejoice not but rather that your names are written in the book of life. He says, I saw Satan fall as lightning. <laughs> so, always get it into perspective. We're talking about a formidable foe. We're talking about our adversary, or the accuser of them. We're talking about all of that there. But always remember, he is a, an eternally defeated foe. He just hasn't given up yet. <laughs> and as long as we're on this earth, you're not giving up on us either. He left Jesus for a season, didn't he? But then he came back again. So we need to be not ignorant of his devices. So let's stand together and we'll pray.